Welcome back to another episode of My Mess is My Message. My name is Allie, and I'm so excited to be with you all today. Today on the podcast, I have Rachel, who is not only a best-selling author, but also an inspiring human. During today's episode, Rachel shares with us what inspired her to write her memoir, Where the River Flows, and what readers can expect from reading her book. She talks about her experiences with eating disorders over the years and what recovery has looked like for her. Rachel gives us a realistic glimpse into her healing journey and some successful strategies she has learned from her experiences, which includes her discovery of dancing and how it has aided her in her healing. Rachel reminds us of the importance of radically accepting who you are and shares some things that she would tell her younger self. This episode is truly something I wish I had listened to when I was struggling, so I highly recommend you take a listen. So let's get into it. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited for you to be on. Um, before we dive into all my questions today, I would love just to learn more about you, what your name is for the audience, just who you are, um, what you do, and where you currently live. Yeah. So my name is Rachel Habakost. I'm a writer. Um, I primarily write about mental health, relationships, um, the human condition. Um, I'm currently in Seattle, Washington, which is my hometown. Um, I just moved back here about a month ago. And yeah, I'm just excited to be here. Oh, so cool. And Seattle is on my bucket list of like places to go. My cousins live out there and they love it. Nice. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a beautiful city. If you like hiking and outdoors um, and if you like food and city life, it has a good balance of both. So definitely. Um, well, I'd love to learn more about you and kind of what led you to like create, um, to write a book and things like that. If you just want to share that. Yeah. So um I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 15. Um, I'm 34 now. So when I was, when I was a teenager, it was like, you know, early two thousands, social media didn't exist. Um, like we had like MySpace and live journal, but that was pretty much it. Um, and mental health was really stigmatized. People did not talk about, um, their thoughts, their feelings, anxieties, um, like anxiety and depression were still things that people weren't really naming. Um, and if you went to therapy, it was like, something's really wrong with you. So I just remember feeling very alone and like there was something deeply wrong with me. And so I kept, um, I kept my, like my, not only my eating disorder, but just anything that I felt like was not, um, perceivable as well, um, successful or, um, perfect for lack of better word to myself. Um, and I struggled alone for a long time. Um, and then in college, uh, I started experiencing depression for the first time. I started self-harming for the first time. I was abusing alcohol. Um, my eating disorder had evolved into binge eating and I was trapped in what felt like a very vicious cycle. And I felt like I was doing it all by myself. And, Um, and after my second year of college, um, I attempted suicide and my mom, I remember my mom came out to New York. I was going to school in New York. My original life plan was to be an actress. I was studying theater. Um, my mom came out to visit me and I remember we were walking through Central Park together and she said, you know, Rachel, your father and I would be okay, um, with you taking some time off school. If that's what you need, if you want to come home, you can. And I remember just feeling this like huge weight lifted off my shoulders because I felt such um, shame for not doing well because my parents had taken a big risk by spending money for me to go to college to study theater, (laughs) which is not like a very lucrative path. And it's a difficult one to take. And they supported me and were paying my way. And I felt a lot of guilt 
around um, this idea that I was wasting their money um, and that that was like what my worth was rooted in. And so to hear from them that it was okay for me to take care of myself and that they were going to support me was a huge relief. Um, So I moved home and I continued to just still kind of work through things on my own. Um, I did start blogging. That was the first time I started writing. Uh, and it was mostly just to process my thoughts because I had a lot of thoughts. I was a big thinker, overthinking, overanalyzing. Um, just my, my brain was constantly on. And, and I found that writing was a big relief and a way for me to kind of get my thoughts outside of my own head and look at them objectively and go, oh, this is what this is about. Or, oh, maybe this is why I think this. And to start to sort of pull apart some of the things that felt so deeply knotted together and intertwined in my mind. Um, so I started to, to, um, to work and to make some money. I traveled for a little bit, which was really amazing to go see a different culture, different worlds and understand that people live life very differently than we do in the West and, um, kind of opened my eyes to like, Oh wow. Like, um, there are other ways to, to live and other priorities and values that people have in this world besides looking a certain way and making a certain amount of money. Um, and then I met my now ex-husband um, who opened my world in a lot of other ways too. And I think about five years after we started dating, I, I um, decided to start acting again. And my eating disorder just came back in full force um, to try and support me through, um, a high pressure, um, critical environment. And, uh, and I was relapsing quite heavily and yeah, so he, he sat me down and said, I think that you are still struggling with your eating disorder and you need to get help. And I, I felt that same relief that I did when my mom had told me I could come home. It was like, Oh, someone recognizes I'm struggling and they're offering me this out. They're offering me this opportunity to get some help and to take a break. And so I did, I went to eating disorder treatment um, and it was one of the most pivotal experiences of my life um, in huge part because of group therapy. Um, I'd never been in group therapy before. I'd been in individual therapy, but I always kind of like, I would sit, I'd been in therapy for like eight years up until that point. And I would sit in the therapist's office, quiet, stubborn, defiant, and kind of have, like, I had this air about me that was like, no one understands me and no one's going to. So good luck trying. (laughs) Um, I had a lot of walls up and group therapy was a, was a big, um, eye-opening experience because I was hearing other people's stories and hearing my own story echoed in their voices. And it was the first time I went, Oh, I'm not the only person that experiences this. I'm not the only person that has these intertwined, tightly woven thoughts. I'm not the only person who binges late at night or worries about my body all day long. Like I'm, there's not something wrong with me. This is an outside of me problem that other people also experience, which means maybe there's hope for me to actually change. And so it was just a big, a big sort of moment of, okay, there's hope. And there's a possibility for something different. So I committed, I radically committed to, to recovery, um, which was really, really, really hard. And I, I had to learn a lot of skills that I had never learned in childhood, like how to regulate my emotions, um, how to tolerate distress, how to set boundaries, how to ask for what I need, how to accept support and ask for support. Um, just these really important life skills that we just, we don't get taught. And, um, and so that kind of inspired me to pay it forward. So my initial plan was to become a therapist. I went, I went to grad school and studied mental health counseling. And I was like, I'm going to go work in an eating disorder treatment facility and I'm going to help 
I'm going to help one person the way that this program helped me. And I very quickly learned while I was um, in my internship in school um, that number one, I still had a lot of work to do on myself. And number two, one-on-one therapy is not the how in which I deliver the mission that I wanted to deliver. And so um, after like maybe six months or so at my internship, I started having panic attacks at work. Um, I was having panic attacks at home. I was having panic attacks in class. My eating disorder symptoms started to ramp back up. And I remember having a conversation with one of my supervisors and, and saying like, I don't, I don't know that I can finish, but I have to, like, I can't not finish something again in my life because of my mental health. And I remember she, she looked at me and she said, Rachel, nobody cares. And I thought, you're a licensed therapist. You can't say that to me. I'm having a, <laughs> having a meltdown here and you're going to tell me nobody cares. Like, how dare you? And I remember like storming out of her office, just enraged because what I wanted to hear was like that same, like softening that my mom and my ex-husband gave me, which was like, it's okay. And she just, she was like, nobody cares. And I went home and I was stewing about it all night long. And then the next morning I woke up and I went, Oh, nobody cares. Like I keep living my life to seek the approval of everyone around me and I keep burning out and running myself into the ground because of it. This is my life and I would like to live it. And so I have to make some different choices around what that looks like and nobody else is going to care because they're the center of their own movie. And so I think I, once I understood what she, what she meant by that, it was very liberating. And then I got to make the choice to withdraw from my program and take care of myself rather than doing it because someone else offered it to me or told me it was what I needed to do. Um, so then I, you know, I went down this whole shame spiral of like, oh God, you know, what am I going to do now? Because I'm not, I'm not finishing my program. I'm not going to be a therapist. Like, what am I going to do? I'm 28 years old. I just got married and I live in the city with my new, like, it was just like a lot. And, um, and so I started writing, I started blogging again and I was like, you know what? I might, I might not be a therapist. That might not be my mode d'etre, but I still want to help one person to less alone. I don't want, I don't want someone to feel like I did for 10 years before they finally get the help they need. Um, and I, I wished that when I was 15, there were more stories that echoed my own somewhere in the world, whether in a book, on the internet, um, in the voices of, of people I looked up to. Um, I just wish that people had talked about it more because I think it would have helped me a lot sooner. So I started writing, I started blogging and, um, and mostly just with the intention of, of, being in practice and maybe someone would read it, maybe they wouldn't, that was okay with me. Um, and at the time my, my husband and I were also kind of trying to figure out what to do with our, like our situation because we had moved to a new city for me to go to school. He wasn't super happy with his job. And, um, in our wedding vows, I had vowed, um, he had, he had had this dream for a long time to ride a motorcycle to South America, but he'd always said to me, you know, I'm worried that if I do that, that's a long time for us to be apart. So I, you know, I just don't know that I will. And so in our wedding vows, I vowed to go with him um, because it was something I wanted him to be able to do. And I thought that by, by committing to do it, doing it with him, then he would get to do it. So we kind of, we kind of thought like, well, we have, we have no kids, no pets. We don't really care about this apartment we rent in the city we don't love. You're not, you don't like your job. You're not in school. Like maybe this is the time. So we saved up for a year sold all of our stuff and got on a motorcycle and rode from Seattle um, to South America. And it was one of the most incredible 
experiences of my life. And it was also the beginning of the end of our marriage. Um, and by the time we got to Peru, um, we, we had just, we had gotten to a place where we, we couldn't figure out how to navigate, um, what the next steps in our marriage would be being together. And so we, we made the decision to take some time apart and, I went to Bali and was in Bali for three months by myself, which was the first time I'd ever been alone in my life. Um, I'd always lived with someone, whether it was my family or dorm roommate or um, other roommates or my ex. Um, so it was the first time I was on my own. And uh, I learned how, how bad I was at being alone. Um, despite being you know, hyper-independent in a lot of ways, I was also hyper-dependent in a lot of ways. And so I was kind of learning like that I was going in my life to these two extremes of either relying solely on authority or the people around me to take care of me or refusing to seek or accept support and doing everything by myself. And so it was a really great, um, a great way for me to sort of recognize those things and then figure out how to find a balance of the two where I could thrive on my own, but also thrive in community. And, um, and I remember like, thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to meet back up with my ex, um, at the end of, it was going to be the end of the year of 2019. So the end of December, we were going to meet back up in Seattle and start couples therapy and, and try to make our marriage work. And I did my very best when I came back to keep my heart open because what I wanted was to make our marriage work. And while I was doing that in Bali, he was finishing the motorcycle trip and, um, and his, his heart had closed. And so when we came back, we weren't on the same page. And, um, and so we, we spent the next several months in couples therapy and decided to take some more time apart. So on March 4th of 2020, like two days after COVID broke out in Seattle, I flew back to Bali. And then within a few days, like the whole world was like, it was just smothered by COVID. And so we were kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I, I, you know, we both kind of decided it would make sense for me to come, come back home. Um, and in the meantime, I had started my, like started changing my Instagram and my blog to be something that I was going to try and do for work on January 1st, 2020. I was like, I'm committed. I'm launching my actual blog. I'm going to focus my social media on writing about mental health, with the mission of making one person feel less alone. Um, and, when I came back from Bali the second time, we were living in his brother's um, basement um, and he wasn't working still. We, neither of us had any money because we had you know, used everything we'd saved for that trip. And I was working really hard to try and get my, my writing off the ground. And he was freaking out about what he was going to do. And then we were also trying to decide if we were going to stay married <laughs> and where we were going to live. And um, and then it was, and it was COVID. And so there was just so much instability and lack of security and in so many ways. Um, and as much as we tried, um, we really, really tried, uh, we, we just, we, we couldn't find a way out. Um, and so after, um, you know, he asked me for a divorce, I remember thinking, okay, well now I, I really have nothing to lose. Um, and it was after that, that I decided like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. Like it was something I'd wanted to do for years and years and something I'd been so afraid to do for fear of what other people might think, for fear of what my family might think, for fear of what it would mean to be that exposed. Um, and I think after, you know, after all of those 
chains of events. Um, and then finally losing my partner in life, I just thought, fuck it. <laughs> like I have, I have nothing to lose. So, um, so I committed to writing my book and I kept writing online and fast forward to now I'm talking to you on a podcast. Um, yeah, so yeah well thank you so much for sharing that and I'm so sorry like you had to go through all those different things but it's like I totally like it's so inspiring like that you share so openly about it because like for people like I've gone through very similar experiences I struggle with anorexia as well as binge eating and that's kind of why I'm have this podcast is I want to start sharing my experiences to help others because I really wish I had stuff like that when I was going through it because you feel so alone and you're trying to navigate it and so what you're doing is so inspiring and so awesome. So it's really cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. And good for you too. We need more people like you. So. <laughs> I'm trying, but um, I would love to know, like, cause you did, you know, struggle up and like over the years with the eating disorder. So what was really helpful and successful in helping you really heal the eating disorder? Uh, well, first I'll say I'm still, I'm still working on it. I'm back in treatment right now. Um, I, I returned to treatment about a month ago, um, which was a very humbling, um, decision to make. And one that my eating disorder really did not like, <laughs> like the first two weeks I was back in treatment, the, the primary voice in my head was, this is, I don't need to be here. I don't need to be here. I don't struggle with these things anymore. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, and I'm, I continued to, to show up because I thought, if there is at least 1% of me that doubts that I'm fine, I'm going to keep showing up because there's a possibility that this 99% is just my eating disorder resisting the pot, like being here. Um, so what I will say is it's been really interesting being in recovery a second time around because I'm now able to actually see how much growth there has been since the first time I went. And I'm able to really, it's like a beautiful mirror for, the change that has occurred and the things that have helped and that are still helping to this day. And now I'm noticing things that I still want support with, which is why I'm back. So I think that, you know, some of the things that have been the most helpful for me, um, which are things that I have to remind myself to do all the time is number one, asking for help. Like I, I continue to this day have this tendency to try and do everything by myself whether it's like, for example, last night I had to take Milo to the um, emergency vet because he ate a bunch of my pills. And in the past, I would have gone by myself, not told anyone I was there, dealt with it, come home, and then probably either binge eat or binge drink to deal with my feelings. And then maybe a week later, told someone what happened. And last night I thought, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my dad who lives three blocks from this hospital that I'm at, and I'm going to ask him to come. Not because I need something from him, not because I, I want him to bring me anything, but just so that there's somebody with me. And like that might seem like a small thing, but having a human being is so regulating to have people near, nearby you is really incredibly regulating for the nervous system. Um, and it's also just like an act against this idea of like, I have to have everything under control. Everything is, is, is up to me and I've got this. Um, and to have some softness and release and say, it's okay if I don't have it all. And it's okay for me to ask for someone to hold it with me um, has been a big deal. Um, and that, that kind of like flexibility of allowing myself to seek support and not have everything under control all the time has been really helpful. Um, another thing that's been really helpful for me is um, learning how to regulate my feelings. So like a big thing for me with well, the first time I went to treatment was they had us 
um, sit down before a meal and look at a feelings wheel and say what, what we felt. And I remember looking at the feelings wheel and being like, there's this many emotions. Like I thought it was just bad or good. Like, <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so learning to go, oh, I feel um, disconnected right now, or I feel irritated, or I feel hopeful, like acknowledging the emotion I felt um, was like step number one, like getting to label it. And then in times when maybe a bigger emotion was coming up in my day-to-day life, being able to notice it happening and go, oh, I'm, I'm starting to feel some irritation. And okay, what do I do when I feel irritated? How can I process this emotion? What would it be like for me to take a moment and acknowledge that I'm irritated and maybe express it in some way and let it move through my body instead of trying to hold on to it, push it down, reject it or project it. Um, because again, like that is like anytime that I was not feeling my feelings in day-to-day life, I was either trying to hold them so tightly so that I could stay composed um, or I was uh, like avoiding feeling them with food or distraction or numbing. Um, and, um, you know, so being able to feel my feelings allowed me to find a different way to regulate than, um, either eating or not eating, which are regulatory activities, like, like not eating and eating both change the chemical and hormonal experience of the body, which for a time can feel regulating when we're under, you know, under stress and long-term it's not the best way to, to go about it. Um, so I think that that was something that was really helpful too. Um, and something I had stopped doing in the last couple of years, which is part of the reason I went back to treatment was I was like, I need some more structured support around actually having that pause and noticing, okay, I'm having a big feeling here and it would probably behoove me to feel it <laughs> even though I don't want to <laughs> um, and uh, yeah so I think like those two things have been have been really helpful and then um, and then also just like huh, man like being okay with who I am like doing a lot of work on like radical radical acceptance of self like radical acceptance of my flaws radical acceptance of um you know, my past or my choices. Um, because I think that like, uh, a lot of the times in my life, I I've been so focused on what people think about me or so afraid of being judged or not liked or rejected. Like rejection is a big, a big one. Um, that like in any instance where that fear was realized, whether it was, I was actually rejected or abandoned or someone didn't like me, it was such a threat to my reality that I then it felt like my world was crumbling and that level of distress felt too difficult to, to cope with. And so I would turn to my eating disorder as a way to cope, as a way to, as a way to become once again, someone that everyone would like, right? Cause then I could put on this appearance of looking a certain way, acting a certain way, having a certain level of success. Like my eating disorder provided those things for me. And they were, it was a way for me to, to protect myself from being rejected, being judged, not being liked. So learning to, instead of be exactly everything for everyone, learning to be myself and be okay with that and be comfortable with not being liked or being judged or learning how to cope with not being liked or not being judged um, has been and continues to be like a big, big component. Um, hard, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can relate to like, honestly, so much of what you're talking about, because I think 
well, it sounds like your um, eating disorders kind of stem from like a need of control, which is very much where mine kind of stem from. I needing to control everything around me. I also felt like for the longest time I had to change who I was to be accepted. I had to change what I looked like, how I acted. And I kind of attached to eating and exercise as a way to kind of cope with that. And I think through all of that, I lost real a touch of like, I lost trust in myself. Honestly, I didn't think I was like enough as I was. I didn't trust my hunger cues. I had the same situation where I had to relearn like my emotions. Cause I, like I already mentioned, but I struggle with binge eating. So I would get stressed or overwhelmed by something I had to do, or, you know, someone said this mean thing to me and it would kind of like draw me or I would, it would cause me to binge. And it, I got to this point where binge eating for me was one of the hardest things I'd overcome just because I couldn't understand it and I didn't know what the root of the cause was. And I really had to go inward and to really understand like, why was I going to the pantry to go binge on a bag of chips? Was it because I was actually hungry or is it because like I was stressed right now and I didn't know how else to cope with it? So I think going inward and really relearning like my emotions was super helpful. Um, And also like you said, like accepting who you are as you are, like we're all very different, all unique. There's no certain way to live. We don't have to be a certain person and just like fully accepting that you have flaws and, but like your flaws aren't really flaws because they make you who you are. So yeah, I like, I just resonate with so much what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you like touched on control. Cause I think for me, I like, I really rejected that notion for a long time that it was all about control. Um, and, and in a lot of ways it is, but it isn't. It's like my experience has been that yes, it's about control. And then I, and then if I ask myself, but what's underneath that, what is it I'm trying to control or what is it I'm afraid will happen if I don't have control. And the more I kind of like dig and dig, the more I realize, like, at least for me, um, you know, so much of my eating disorder is about, it's just about wanting love and wanting to belong. And this fear of if I don't have everything under control, or if I don't control everything in my life, then I won't be able to get that thing that I want, which is love and belonging. And, and the uncertainty of life and, you know, and what, <laughs> what this is and what we're doing and, and not really knowing, right? Like just the whole, this, just this notion that really all the rules or the, the maps or the, you know, the life paths that are presented to us are just made up. Like it's all made up as a way for us to feel like we have some sense of control. And so in a lot of ways, like everything we do is about control. Getting a job is about control. Getting a partner and a family is about control. Um, like having a certain kind of car or like whatever it is, it's, it's how we sort of like get on that uh, track, if you will, that we're told is the way that we can stay in control of our lives. And if we're off that track, then we're out of control. And, um, and I think also like for me, my eating disorder was a way for me to feel like I had a track without having to live by society's standards, because I think it also really rejected the track that was laid out for me. I didn't, I didn't want the life that was presented to me in terms of like, get married, have kids, get a house, get a good job, save your money, retire. Like that just didn't appeal to me at all. And so I think without that sort of quote unquote normative track, I didn't have one. And so my eating disorder was almost a way for me to have something to hold on to um, when everything else sort of felt like, okay, well, I don't, I don't have a rubric, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think like, yes, it is about control. And I always like to ask myself, and, and what is the fear? If I didn't have control, what would it mean? Um, 
And so that's always something I like to come back to as well, because then I get to the root of what it is that I actually want. And then I can ask myself, well, what are other ways to, to get there? Um, or, or how do I sit with the, the reality of, I might not know how to get there. <laughs> yeah. And you might not know, but you might, might as well just like, kind of like enjoy where you're at now. And I think for me, like the, all the, like, I'm not good with big changes in my life. I like stability and I've learned to get better with being, you know, f- more flexible and just kind of go with the flow. But like, it took me a while because every like big change in life, when I went to college, that was hard for me. When I like moved to a new city, when I got a new job, like whenever those like big changes happen, my eating and like, I feel like I've come a long way with everything, but it will get a little bit worse than it was the day before just because of those changes. Cause I want to grip for some like onto something for that control. So I've learned over the years how to like regulate that feeling of needing of control, but you know, it takes time and it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Transition and change is a concept we talk about a lot in treatment um, because for the, for that exact reason. So that definitely resonates. Definitely. So how did you get to the point where you started to really just know that you needed to accept who you were? Like if someone like is struggling to like, cause they feel like they have to be a certain person. What would you tell someone that's in that place? I would say baby steps, like one thing at a time. Um, we don't have to accept our entire selves overnight. Um, nor could we possibly expect ourselves to, because we are also changing all the time. And so there's always new things that arise where we go, Oh, this is something I didn't know about myself or that I liked or that I wanted. And how do I feel about this? So um, I would say baby steps. Like I, there are still parts of myself that are just clouded by shame. There are still things that I don't share or don't talk about because I'm afraid. Um, so I'm not in this place of like, I fully accept who I am and I'm totally okay with myself. And I'm much more okay with myself and much more who I am than I was in the past. And so just allowing yourself some grace for like small incremental progression instead of overnight change. Um, and that can, that can look like a lot of different things. Like it can look like, um, like I just wrote a, a piece about this on my sub stack. Cause this is like the theme of my, um, my next season on my sub stack, but, um, about asking yourself, like, where do I feel, where do I feel shame? Is it how I look? Is it my values? Is it the way I want to live my life? Is it my spiritual beliefs? Is it my relationship and how I interact with my partner? Or is it what I want in a partnership? Um, and just getting curious about where shame lives. And I, and I think that that is a really good indicator for where we need to invite acceptance in. And again, it doesn't have to all happen at once. It can be like, where do I feel some shame? And where do I feel like there's a, there's enough safety in this area that I might be able to open it up a little bit and find some acceptance. Um, so, you know, it could be, for example, like, um, I used to, um, like when I was posting on Instagram, I was, uh, you know, writing a lot about mental health and I, you know, people on Instagram post bikini pics, they post photos of them at the beach, they post, a cute photo of them and their friends. It's a selfie drinking drinks on a Wednesday night, whatever. And in my mind, I was like, I can't post those things because I write about mental health. And I was talking to a friend about it and she was like, why you exist in a body on this planet? Like you go to the beach, you have drinks with your friends. Like, why can't you be both? And I realized that I carried a lot of shame for those parts of myself that enjoyed getting drinks with my friends on Wednesday. I felt shame about, um, you know, 
having a body and feeling good in it. <laughs> like, God forbid I feel good in my fucking body. Right. But I noticed like, Oh, I have, I, I feel some shame about these parts of myself and some judgment around those coexisting in a, in a person who also cares about mental well-being. And I had to, I had to ask myself some questions about that and then go, okay, well, what feels safe for me? Does it feel safe for me to explore um, like accepting that I kind of like being a little bit provocative? Does that feel safe? Does it feel safe for me to explore like that I enjoy socializing and um, and spending time with friends and that I like alcohol? Like, and these things that I felt a lot of shame about and how do I explore that and then invite some acceptance in? So um, yeah, I would just say to people like, baby steps one thing at a time um and just yeah just focusing on one thing and just getting curious honestly and just asking questions um and being really gentle about it yeah no that's really really good advice and i love what you're saying because i feel like for the longest time we kind of like or me and maybe you as well but like i feel like i was trying to please others that i forgot who i was so it's really cool when you take the time to ask yourself these questions so you rediscover who you are what things you like what things you don't like and what really makes up you and it's kind of it's kind of fun like you kind of like wow i am pretty great like i am pretty special and i think in order to do this and really ask yourself these questions you really have to take the time to like slow down block out the noise of society stop doing things in your life and really take the time to get in touch with who you are. And I think people, you can do that through like slowing down and meditating or like through prayer or things like that. But that, I mean, that's how I figured it out. I feel like I finally took the time to slow down. I was someone who like was always go, go, go. And I took the time to actually slow down to like, be like, okay, why am I doing all this? Let me remind myself who I am. Yes. A hundred percent. Slowing down is hard for me to do. And usually because that means I have to sit with my own thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Pay attention to what's going on inside of me um, instead of what's happening around me. Um, so yeah, I think that's really good advice too. Yeah. And then also I know on your Instagram, you do like a lot of like with dancing and stuff, which I love. So I like would love if you talk more about it, like why you do it and like the benefits of it. Yeah. So I, um, when I was in Bali the first time, um, I went to an ecstatic dance, which I didn't, I had no idea what that was. My friend was just like, let's go to ecstatic dance on Sunday morning. And I was like, who the fuck goes dancing on a Sunday morning? Like, I'm so confused. <laughs> like, but okay, sure. I'm, you know, I'm here to do, do new things, try new things, push myself outside my comfort zone. Let's go. So I, I showed up to this venue. It was like this beautiful outdoor um space uh and there was a dj and probably like 100 people and um and i just remember the dj saying all right everyone we're about to get started there's only three rules number one no cell phones number two no talking and touching and number three there's no right way to dance have fun and i was like what is this (laughs) um and and I was like, I, you know, I remember I first started dancing and like thinking about like, okay, how do I, how do I look sexy? How do I like move my body in a way that's like cute and good and goes with the flow and goes with the rhythm. And I was like watching everyone around me to see who was watching me and nobody was fucking paying attention to me. They were all like, just like jumping, swirling. People were shouting and hooting and hollering. Like some people were on the floor rolling around. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, what's going on? And then as soon as I was like, okay, no one's paying attention to me. Everyone's in their own space, in their own body with the music. Okay. I think I understand what's going on here. And like, so I kind of like allowed myself 
a little bit of permission to drop into my own body, listen to the music and ask, okay, how do I want to move? And over the course, sorry, my dog is like having a hacking attack. Um, and over the course of the next like hour and a half, I, I moved in ways that I had never moved in my life. I was, I just felt so free in my body. And I, I found like just a deep, like sense of connection to myself, to the music. And even though I wasn't in contact with anyone in the, in the room, I felt deeply connected to the people around me. And at the very end, I remember like I was laying on the ground next to this woman and she was, we were both laying on the ground and I was just sobbing and she was laying on the ground next to me, looking at me and we just made eye contact and she was a total stranger. And I just, we were just looking at each other while I was crying. And at the, at the very end, we, you know, we all were getting up and leaving and she came up to me and she was like, I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I love you. Can I give you a hug? And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm in Bali. I'm here for this. Like, yes, you can. Like, I love you too. And like, I, my heart just felt so open. My body felt open. And so I just kept going back. I was like, this is a really good experience for me to like get into my body and also open up. Like I felt so tight and closed for so many years and so afraid. Um, just like so afraid and so tense. And it just was like, Oh, it was just a great way for me to, um, to release and, uh, and to really like what felt like sweat out a lot of shame, um, and a lot of fear. And so I just, I kept, you know, when I, when I came back to the States, I kept trying to find ways to just dance here and there. Like I put on a song in my living room and dance and, or like shake it out. And, um, and I remember talking to my therapist about it and she was like, oh yeah, that's somatic healing. Yeah, I was like, what, do you, what is somatic healing? And she was like, oh, it's like som somatics are like, uh, you know, using the body as a mechanism for healing. So most psych psychotherapy is about the mind and about using our thoughts or our, our brain to change the way that we feel or our behaviors. Um, and somatics is about using the body to change the mind. And I was like, oh, that's super interesting. This is a thing. And so I started looking more into it. And there's so much about, um, you know, the way that, um, like if we look at animals who get stressed, uh, like if you ever see a dog or a horse when they're, after they're stressed out, they shake, they shake. And it's a way for us to like actually biologically shake out stress hormones that get heightened in the body after a scary or stressful experience. Um, so shaking itself is just like a biological process for helping these stress hormones move out of the body faster. Um, so that was one thing I learned that I thought was pretty cool. And then the second thing I learned was um, how, like, in you know, when, when we experience traumatic events, um, and disclaimer, I'm not a psychologist or a doctor, so, you know, please consult with your, your professional or do your own research. But, you know, based on the research I have done um, and things I've read, uh, when we experience a traumatic event, um, certain parts of the brain um, can become dampened. Um, and one of those is, like, our cognitive our motor skills. So our ability to like kind of have a connection between the mind and the body, um, gets, gets dampened. And so dancing is a way to bring those motor skills back online because we have to have a level of connection to the music, which is outside of us. And then the way that that impacts our body and then how we move and rhythm and balance. Um, these are super great for motor skills, um, which can help repair some things that sometimes get damaged when we experience trauma. Um, and then we also can hold emotions in different parts of our body. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like energy work around 
um, you know, like the chakras and whatnot and what, you know, where we hold and store emotions. Um, and so I don't know, just like learning all of these different components from like a spiritual to a scientific to a psychological, um, I was like, yes, like I'm here for this. Like if I can, if I feel stressed out and I can dance as a way to kind of like bring myself back to equilibrium, kind of get that stress out of my body, get back into my own body, ground, reconnect and breathe. I'm going to do that. And so I just started dancing and like posting it on my Instagram stories. And I was honestly like not expecting anyone. Like I really thought people would be like, can you stop dancing on your Instagram? It's really annoying. <laughs> but so many people were like, Oh my God, I do that too. Like I didn't know it was a thing. And um, so it was just like really cool to like accidentally stumble upon this really incredible practice. that is just fun. Like, and now I notice like if I go a week without dancing, um, like I, I, I notice how when I start again, I'm, I'm back in that place I was before I went to that ecstatic dance where I feel like self-conscious. No one's watching me. I'm in my own living room, right? But like I feel self-conscious about how I'm moving. I don't, it feels like everything feels like tight and stuck, like, and I don't feel as free. Um, and when I, when I'm doing it on a daily basis, when I say daily basis, I'm like one song, literally one song a day. But when I allow myself to totally feel free in my body for just one song, um, everything else loosens up and gets more online. So it's just, I don't know. It's something that I, I, I have loved, um, finding, and it's like a really, also a really cool way to connect with people. Yeah, no, it's so, so cool. And that's so interesting. I didn't know all of that about dancing. And I do notice when I like dance in the morning or like listen to a song or something like my mood is lifted. Like it's just so fun and it's such a fun thing to do, but that's also free. So I feel like it's something that everyone should do. Yeah. Yes. Also, I'm so loud in the background for anyone listening, if you're hearing like shaking and bumping, it's my adorable six month old golden doodle just having a ball with my slippers. So I have seen your dog on your Instagram and it is so cute. Like it's actually the dog that I want when I eventually do get a dog. So <laughs> Milo is adorable. Oh, thank you. Yeah. He's a bundle of joy. <laughs> um, and then also I'm just curious, like through all the experiences you've had over the, over your, your just lifetime, is there anything that you would like tell your younger self or things that you would, you would wish you knew sooner? Oh my gosh. Um, I get asked this question a lot and I feel like I answer it differently every time. Um, I think, you know, I think I would just tell her like, it's always going to be okay. Like it's always going to be okay. Even when things get really, really hard or really scary, which they will, um, it will be okay. And you're not alone. Um, and, and you're, and you're loved. I don't know. I think that's I, I used to feel like, oh, I wish I could go back and change things. I wish I could go back and tell her, like, if you know this, then you will prevent this kind of pain. Or if you do this, then these bad things won't happen. And I, and I realize now, like, I can't stop life from happening. Like, my parents are going to die one day. That's inevitable. People that I love are going to die one day. That's inevitable. Um, like, there, no matter what I do, hard stuff is going to happen in my life. And... Um, and maybe knowing certain things might have prevented certain types of pain, but who knows what that would have opened up for a different kind of pain that I wouldn't have known if that was the path that I had gone down. So I think like, I would just want, I would just want her to know that like, no matter what happens, um, it's going to be okay. Um, 
Yeah. No, that's, I really, really like that because just me, when I was younger, one thing that I would always ask my mom, cause I was always just like anxious and worried about the future. I'd always ask her, is like, everything going to be okay? I actually would, that was like kind of my line that I would say to her and she's like, yes, Sally, everything's going to be okay. But no, I really like that advice. And like you said, like no regret of things that happened in the past because it got you to this moment because every like failure or mistake or success that you have in your life really gets you to the moment you're at. And then the last two questions I always like to end with is the first being, what is your favorite piece of advice? Oh, um, you know, I don't think I have a favorite. Again, like this always changes depending on the season I'm in. But right now, I actually just texted this to a friend. I'm going to find it and read it because um, it's it's just relevant for me right now. So it's my favorite. It's my current favorite piece of advice. <laughs> Um, and it's something that an art teacher once told me. Um, and it was in reference to like, it was in reference to art, but it's something that I've used like just in my life. Um, he said, learn the rules by heart, know them so well, you could recite them from memory then. And only then break every single one of them. Oh, I love that. That's really cool. I like, I like that a lot, just like in terms of my like creative process, but also in terms of life, like, um, I feel like it gives me radical permission to be who I want to be while also being deeply understanding of the systems that we live in and the, um, sort of the, uh, unspoken rules of society, um, and being a decent human being, like having that skeleton and being aware of it, but then letting the meat be mine, you know? So Totally. I remember coming to the realization that there are no rules in life. And I was just like, that is so freeing that I can really just be whoever I want and I won't be messing up. Like, how cool is that? My ex-husband told me, um, like within a month of meeting each other, I was having like an anxiety spiral and he like grabbed me by the shoulders and he looked me in the eye and he said, Rachel, there is no right way. There is only the way you do it. And that like, that stuck has stuck with me for over a decade. Um, but yeah, just what you said made me think of that. Yeah, no, I loved it. I mean, I love that. It's so it's so true. Um, but what is something you do every day that brings you joy? Um, oh gosh, um, something I do every day that brings me joy. Um, I don't know anything that where I can move my body, whether it's like getting into the gym and lifting a weight and going, wow, I'm strong. I have muscles, yay. <laughs> um, or like going for a walk with Milo, or like doing a dance, or like stretching like some something where I can move and physically get into my body instead of thinking about my body um brings me joy yeah oh I love that well before I let you go if you want to let everyone know where they can find you and follow you and find your book yeah so I'm um on Instagram I'm at Rachel underscore Havacost my website is rachelhavacost.com um my memoir is called where the river flows and that's available on my website or amazon and barnes and noble and other online retailers um and my current project is my Substack publication the messy middle um which is also linked in my instagram bio um most things are linked in there so okay cool well thank you so much yeah, thank you 